Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. So, the 2020 U.S. presidential election is not over. As of right now, it looks like former Vice President Joe Biden is on track to probably win the presidency, but we're not sure. Uh, And it looks like the Republicans are on track, probably, to retain control of the Senate, but we're not sure. That's what we're going to be talking about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, and what all of this means for foreign policy for the world and for everyone. I'm Jen Williams here as always with Alex Ward. Hi, is it actually Thursday? It is actually Thursday. This is happening. Uh, We are all very sleep deprived, but Zach Beecham is not here today. That is because he is out for paternity leave. Zach and his lovely wife, Katie, have welcomed in their new daughter to the world. So we all wish them amazing uh, congratulations. We're so happy. Um, But that also means that Zach is going to be away for a little while taking care of his new baby and doing everything that is not related to work. And that also means, drumroll please, Alex, that uh, frequent worldly guest Jen Kirby is going to be filling in for Zach for a while. Jen, welcome. Hello. How are you? Congratulations, Zach. Thanks for letting me fill in. If you're listening, I hope you're not, though. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, Zach, do not listen. Like, just hang out with your kid. It's awesome. Um, But yeah, worldly, frequent worldly listeners will remember Kirby uh, has joined us plenty of times. She is uh, one of our brilliant foreign reporters on the foreign team at Vox. She also, you may notice, has the same first name that I do. So uh, as we usually do, we will be referring to you as Kirby, although I will probably call you Jen sometimes and forget Uh, because I don't know my own name. But uh, yeah, so Kirby is with us and is going to be with us for a while. So we are stoked to have you. Stoked to be here. And what a great time to start. Uh, No big deal. Nothing going on. Slow news week. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we are uh, still in the middle of trying to figure out what this election is going to look like in the end. Alex, why don't you just kind of lay out the state of play for those of us who took a nap for five minutes and maybe things have changed? Uh, where are we? What does it look like? What is the landscape? What's happening right now? Oh, I'm so jealous you got to nap for five minutes. Um, okay, <laughs> so here's where we're at as of Thursday morning East Coast time. 
in terms of the electoral college vote, it's pretty close. They're re- Trump and Biden are roughly within 50-ish points of each other, 40, 50 points, Biden ahead. But Biden uh, is on the cusp of becoming president. That's because really he only needs um, perhaps uh, a couple of states or one state in particular, Pennsylvania, to get over the 270 vote edge to become the next president. And I should say that we're here because Biden was able to flip at the moment, two key states that Trump won in 2016, that would be Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, and so it, it seems to be denying Trump a path for the moment. The other reason it looks like Trump is going to struggle to win is because the states that are outlying, uh, that we're still waiting to get called, uh, in general, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, in all those states, Biden is competitive. He might not win them all, but he's quite competitive, especially in Arizona and Nevada, which if he won those two, he'd be the next president, or in Pennsylvania, where if he just won that, he'd be the next president. Uh, And Georgia, in a sense, he's only down at this moment by around 20,000 votes, and that's a plan B. So doesn't mean Trump can't win. He totally could. But don't take this as, you know, (laughs) Trump is is out. It's not over yet. It's not over over yet. until it's over. Right. But if we're looking at pathways to the presidency, Biden's are a lot wider than Trump's are. Um, so it's looking good for Biden. Uh, and if you're, if you're sitting in like either camp today, I would be pretty shocked if the Trump camp were more optimistic than the Biden camp. And Jen, Senate wise, what's the the status of the Senate? Do we know like who has controlled it yet? Um, it's still a little bit undecided, but it is, I think in terms of the Senate map, Democrats are a little bit more hopeful that they would flip more seats. Some of the targets they had their eye on, like most notably, probably Susan Collins in Maine, um, they failed to to unseat her. But they did flip a few states um, in Arizona and um, Colorado. They they won the Senate. But right now it is looking like it will either be a Republican majority or what might happen is there because the Georgia results are not finalized, it's possible that those two Senate seats might go to a runoff. The odds of Democrats winning two seats from Georgia doesn't seem particularly high. So right now we're looking at a slight Republican majority, um, which can make a big difference um, in the way that our divided government works. Yeah, exactly. So so that's kind of the operating framework we're going to talk about here today. Uh, again, we don't know for sure. Things are not over yet, but we got a podcast to do. So we, we're going to talk about basically if things continue along this track the way it looks like, it looks like we're probably going to have a President Joe Biden and a Republican-controlled Senate, like Jen said, divided government. So we're going to talk about what that means for, for Biden's foreign policy. Previously on the show, we've talked about his foreign policy kind of agenda. We're going to talk a little bit more specifically here about, you know, what he could do, uh, what having a divided government might mean for his ability to get, you know, his agenda enacted. Uh, we have lots of different thoughts on that. Uh, and then in the second half of the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about what this means kind of more generally, what the election means for, for the world, uh, especially in terms of the way it has played out here with our current president and his, uh, let's say, doubts about the legitimacy of the election. Um, so, yeah, uh, Alex, your thoughts, GOP, Senate. Biden presidency, go. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this because I think we may actually have some disagreements. So I, I will do a, <laughs> do a, uh, a surface level to, to begin. I mean, the history of like a president in one party and a, and a Senate, especially in another, or at least a divided, you know, divided leadership, um, usually 
does not mean a lot for foreign policy. And by that, I mean, it doesn't mean like a president's foreign policy agenda is gone. Like they have to completely change everything about how they deal with the world. That's not the case. The president has immense power to conduct foreign policy as at this point uh, or to this point he wants. But what we normally see and what I would expect this time again is that a Republican-led Senate and Biden as president, a Democrat, would lead to at least some or some restrictions or perhaps more accurately, less wiggle room for Biden to operate. So let me give an example. Let's say Biden wanted to remove certain tariffs off of China. He might not really want to because he wants to be quite tough against China. Um, But let's just say that's the case. Now, Republicans who are in alignment with Trump's tough stance uh, and, you know, economic nationalism are uh, stuff from 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 the Trump administration and may not want certain tariffs off, especially because a lot of those tariffs could even they might hurt or in some cases they might benefit certain states and certain constituencies. And so they might resist, you know, like at least even congressionally and go, hey, even though the president has a lot of latitude to do tariffs, um, the Senate may go, hey, we'll punish you elsewhere if you take these off. Also, let's say the Iran deal, and let's say Iran decided to get back into compliance with the deal and Biden, you know, said, okay, fine, we're back in the deal. He would certainly face a lot of Republican backlash. And if Biden even wanted to negotiate stricter terms, one could imagine Republicans in the Senate going, or wanting to go further than Biden would want to, or at least Biden, Biden might come up with some deal. Again, this is all hypothetical, but Biden may come up with some deal and Republicans go, not tough enough, man. Then again, we won't have a treaty or anything like that. And we'd have to go with what we had in the Obama administration, which was him just kind of going like, we have a deal. It's a handshake agreement that could be reversed easily, as we saw in the Trump administration. So all this to say is that does, could Biden do what he wants with Iran mostly? Yes. Could he do what he wants with China mostly? Yes. And with really any other nation. But there are certain ways that a Republican-led Senate could check Biden's goals or aspirations or you know, actual work uh, as he conducts foreign policy. So I think that's true, but I'm a little bit more hopeful. And I will say this is a big caveat is that we don't know what this Republican Senate will kind of act like and what if everything plays out as it seems, what, what the political landscape will look like without Trump on the scene. And what I mean is one thing that has been clear is the Senate, maybe less so in the House, but the Senate have and places where there's been sort of vocal disagreement with Trump has been on foreign policy in Trump's treatment of our allies in, um, you know, his actions in places like Syria and his um, handling of Turkey and the Kurds. Um, Also on, you know, trade wars, that's been a source of subject and some of his other kind of, you know, just sort of our his treatment of allies, there's been some vocal disagreement. And so Biden would obviously kind of roll that back. So the question is, will senators be largely relieved and go along with those kinds of rehabilitation projects? Or will they kind of decide, you know, hey, we did okay. Um, You know, all things considered, maybe Trump's kind of America firsty path was right. And I think that's sort of the wild card out there. But I think there's a lot of places where Biden and the Senate could actually get on board um, on things like human rights regarding China and the Uyghurs, um, Hong Kong. I think Republicans might like a little bit of a scale back on the trade wars. So I think uh, maybe even things like you know, Yemen and Saudi Arabia, I think there could be opportunities for compromise there. So I think there's areas where they can work together. 
the question is, will Republicans want to take that path? Or now that they're in the resistance again, will they go even Trumpier than they were under Trump? I have a few thoughts here. This is something that that Alex, you've talked about before, um, I think to me, and we've we've discussed this offline off the show before. But, you know, the question of like whether Trump has like kind of forever changed foreign policy in certain ways um, and potentially even for the good. And Jen, like the point that you made is like, you know, that America first kind of approach, like will Republicans go that actually kind of worked for us? You know, it seemed to actually get some stuff done. I think, you know, we've talked on the show before about Trump obviously hasn't taken a conventional approach. He, you know, there are things that previous politicians, you know, promised to do. And when they got in office, they didn't do for political reasons. Specifically, I'm thinking of, you know, moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Well, Trump actually did that. And I think, you know, in some degree, that approach of like, you know, no longer, you know, even especially with with Israel-Palestine and like making agreements, you know, side deals, these kind of normalization agreements, helping facilitate those between Arab countries and Israel. Like that was something that was like, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. Don't even bother pursuing it. And then the Trump administration was like, well, we're just going to do that. So, and I wonder like to some degree, whether that, if there is a Biden presidency, whether some of that, you know, those like third rails of foreign policy are now kind of like broken and whether that'll change you know, the way things are done going forward. Alex, you're making a face, so. No, it's mostly because I'm trying to stay awake, not because I'm bored, but because I haven't slept in, in, in three days. Um, I'm glad you find my, my thoughts so compelling, no, it's, Alex. No, it's, it's not that. Uh, believe me, I'm, I'm fighting to stay awake to hear them. Uh, it's, uh, oh, I mean, I'd say one thing, which is while I do find the deals to be historic in the, in the general sense of like they are a thing that have happened in history and they are new, I still do feel that like they haven't, like it's not like Trump solved the Middle East or really, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Right. Sure. I mean, I, and I know you know that. It's just it's like it's it seems a bit cosmetic and 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 so like I'm I'm interested to see how if Biden sort of works in that framework. I, I can't imagine him moving the embassy back. Can't imagine him undoing those deals. I mean, he has to work from what he's been given. Right. It's a relay race at the end of the day. So he's handed the baton. That baton has an embassy in Jerusalem and it has the Abraham Accords and it has Venezuela under tons of sanctions and whatever. He has to he can't just be like, all right, new baton um, to torture this metaphor <laughs> further. Um, but I I guess what I would say is uh, there are I guess I, I'm interested in kind of two things. One, um, to go off of what what Kirby said, I'm fascinated by the sort of Yemen and Saudi Arabia bit because the past four years have seen a really emboldened let's say, more restraint-focused Congress, a Congress that really wanted to take back a lot of its power, foreign policy-making power from the president. And they did so in a bipartisan fashion, particularly in Yemen. Um, and there really is, in the Senate and in, in in the House, this notion from Republicans and Democrats that, one, again, Congress should have more voice in the way a president uses, especially his, his war powers. But two, that the American president should really just not, in general, um, get weighed into any sort of military conflict without congressional approval or really just in general. And that's, I find, a fascinating development of the Trump era. And I don't know if they were emboldened by sort of Trump's America first um, or at least reticence to start a new war. Not that he didn't mind using military force. He did and and does. I mean, again, he may not be gone forever, but like that is a, that is a weird feature of the Trump presidency, a guy who doesn't like full-on wars but doesn't mind using uh, bombing some stuff. Or so whether or not, you know, that sort of feeling holds in Congress and, and continues into Biden or if perhaps, you know, Biden, who is um, 
more willing to, I wouldn't say he's he's pro-force in many cases. He's just a little more traditional in the sense that, you know, you use American power when you when and if you need it. Um, if that congressional resistance, including from Democrats, will will persist. I find that that might be the, the greatest sort of narrative between uh, a White House congressional tussle in a Biden era is how do Democrats perhaps, I would say, if, if I had to choose between continuity and change, perhaps continue more the Trump restrainy aspect of that of that administration. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think we are going to see more of that, which I think on a net is probably maybe a good thing because also you have to keep in mind the Democrats, I believe, are likely to keep the House, but they are going to lose some seats, which means, you know, it's going to be harder to it's going to be a lot of a closer vote. So on things like use of force, you know, particularly like left um, the more, you know, progressive uh, House members might also kind of not be on board with that. So there might even be some resistance there. So I think you could see potentially some reining in of executive power um, when it comes to, you know, the use of force, which I think would be a net good. I think, you know, presidents largely have too much power. But on the whole, I think if you're talking about getting things done, you know, we've spent much of this campaign talking about health care and, you know, the Supreme Court and, um, you know, other things like uh, uh, stimulus, that's going to be a lot harder to do than foreign policy. And I think, Alex, you know, you have an amazing piece that outlines kind of Biden's agenda. And I think he'll be able to do, you know, some of those, uh, you know, kind of broader goals like restoring alliances, getting back into the Paris Climate Accord. Yes, maybe not with Senate approval, but at least kind of doing those big things, he'll have probably the most ability to act in the foreign policy space, and he might even be able to domestically. Yeah, that that's actually a huge point. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, I'm kind of of two minds. Like, I think there are two there are two ways it could go. And the way you think, you know, Biden is very much thought of as having like, he has tons of foreign policy experience. You know, he had very much of the foreign policy kind of portfolio in the Obama administration. He served on, if I'm Correct me if I'm wrong, Senate Foreign Relations, is that right? Biden was the chair of Senate Foreign Relations, yeah. When he was in Congress. And so I could see very much a Biden president coming in and wanting to really, you know, make his stamp on foreign policy and really focus a lot there. But I could also see, because of everything you mentioned, Jen, you know, coronavirus even, the pandemic response, both economically and in terms of the public health response, that alone is going to keep him very focused at home, you know, domestically. And I think, you know, working with a divided government is going to take a lot of political capital from him. Biden's whole kind of theory of change, as political scientists like to call it, you know, the way he thinks about getting things done is he's very much about making deals across the aisle. Like, that's his whole thing, right? Like, I'm someone who can make deals with Republicans. I can reach across the aisle. I can get bipartisan agreements. But if, you know, that takes a lot of, of work. It takes a lot of meetings and political capital and, you know, giving and, you know, giving up what you want in some areas. And so I could see that taking up a lot of the oxygen and, and tying his hands in some ways where he can't focus on foreign policy. But on the flip side, it could also go the other way, right? Like you said, Jen, like he could just want to just focus on foreign policy because that's where he has the most room to operate. And just, you know, if it if it starts to be like, well, I can't get anything done at home, at least I can get a lot of stuff done abroad. So I could see it going kind of kind of one of, of two ways there. And, it, and it, it, I'm not sure which way it'll go. Obviously, we don't know. But but I think it'll be interesting. And thinking of Biden kind of foreign policy in 
one of the things I think about is like ending foreign wars, right? Ending, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, troop levels. The progressive wing of the Democratic Party, we saw particularly during the, the primaries, right? It was very much this like race to see who could promise to pull troops home sooner, you know? Um, but Biden is very much more, you know, Alex, as you mentioned, a centrist kind of more traditional foreign policy kind of hand. And I could very much see him bucking some of that, even if he, you know, has said during the campaign that he wants to, you know, end these wars. He's also kind of hedged at times. And I could very much see generals going to him in Afghanistan and, you know, even potentially in Iraq and saying, look, it's not time. We can't do this. Uh, it's too soon. It's just not safe for us to pull these troops out and and kind of slowing down that that troop withdrawal that Trump kind of facilitated. And I could see that pissing off you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, as well as, you know, people on the other side. So, I mean, the way Biden is squaring that circle is he's and it's something he's he's argued for quite some time still. But it, love to square circles. Yeah. I mean, a, it, I, I sucked at that as a kid. I always tried to put the circle through the square peg and like vice versa. Like, <laughs> I, I, If you just push hard enough, it works. I, honestly, all I know is like I didn't. My, there's a through line between my inability to do that game. And when I got to geometry class in high school and like. <laughs> And I was like, what, what are shapes and what are signs? And I don't understand anything. And then my teacher was just like, you don't, you don't need to do this. Um, Have you thought about writing in English and journalism as a career? <laughs> that, that was a late decision. And thank goodness I made it. Um, but I mean, the way Biden squares the, the, the circle that I can't get through the board is leaving a counterterrorism force. So he, right. he wants to do that in Afghanistan. It's basically what we already have in Iraq but, um, and, and elsewhere, perhaps in Syria. It's just a, a small contingent of troops that are there to, I guess, to, to crudely put it like mow the lawn, just kind of make sure that no group rises up again, that no group uh, really can gain territory like an ISIS, let's say. And it's kind of just keeping those threats at bay whenever possible. That is not a full troop withdrawal as progressives and uh, on the on the left and, you know, conservatives on the right. Um, America firsters, I guess at this point, I'm going to start labeling them, you know, want to bring home, but it's, I think that's sort of the, 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 it's not even the halfway point, but it is the point between that Biden feels comfortable where he can not have a large force and also try to deal with the threats as they are. I should say though that, and I, and I totally agree with the domestic stuff. I mean, like I can't, one thing we should note is that Biden is going to have, uh, quite the personnel to join his team. Not that I, not that you should necessarily believe that they're going to be the best people in the world or that you'll agree with everything they do, but they are seasoned officials. They were there in the Obama years, some were there before, and they're going to be good across the board in general, at least knowledgeable uh, when it comes to domestic issues and foreign policy issues. So I would imagine that Biden, just because of the politics of the moment, has to focus on the coronavirus and like making sure people don't get evicted and from their homes. And so he'll have a lack, he'll probably focus his attention on that, leaving officials um, to focus more on foreign policy and whatever. Last point on this is even on personnel, which I do believe personnel is policy, I do believe like a, a Republican-led Senate does constrain Biden for uh, on some issues. So one person he's considering for Secretary of State would be Susan Rice. I would be very I would be very surprised if he put her forward and nominated her for that role with Republicans in the Senate because of the controversy around her with Benghazi because she gave some talking points that they didn't like and now that she's forever tinged by that. So that is one way as well that you could have a Republican-led Senate uh, affect of Biden foreign policy by affecting who he actually nominates and has in charge. Yeah, or even just not confirming them exactly. even if he does put them right. forward. Yeah. 
I will say, too, on the domestic front, I agree that Biden is going to be absolutely consumed by the pandemic and the hopefully uh, vaccine response and rehabilitating the economy. But I also think that makes will is important to his foreign policy agenda, because I think this last four years, but particularly this last year and the handling of the coronavirus response in the United States has been really clarifying for our allies of like, we do not really know the United States and we have to sort of think about what this means, even if, you know, we have a Biden or a Democratic administration. And I think the U.S. really does need to start fixing some of its problems at home. And that's part of the global rehabilitation project is basically you know, <laughs> I think that the rose-colored glasses have been totally torn off um, from even some of our closest partners. And in order to rebuild our reputation, to be seen as a reliable partner, we need to address some of our own kind of domestic crises pretty robustly in order to be able to to do that. That's a great point. Uh, I absolutely agree. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some more about the foreign policy uh implications of a Biden presidency and what some of those allies might be thinking right now. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right. Welcome back, worldly listeners. Uh, I am here with Alex Ward and Jen Kirby. We are talking about what a potential Biden presidency could mean for foreign policy and for the world. Um, So we talked a bit in the first half about what Biden's agenda might look like and what he might be able to do. Um, Now I kind of want to talk about the other half of this equation, which is, you know, what other countries are going to do and and what other countries are thinking about. Um, Jen, I know you've had some thoughts uh, about, you know, the UK and and Brexit related stuff. So I don't know. Why don't you start us there? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's still to be decided because obviously the election is still um, to be decided. (laughs) that part too. Uh, I think there is, if it goes as is is going, I think there's going to be a major sigh of relief um, around the world. I think that is uh, understood uh, just because dealing with the Trump administration was very hard. And I think, as I said before, you know, this year has been very clarifying the sense that the I I do think there's some things that can't be sort of put back in the bottle, but this will at least in the same way I think some people were thinking about it domestically, like give everyone a pause on the chaos to kind of regroup and reevaluate and sort of take it from there. The world may sort of forever be changed because of Trump, but at least we're going to sort of slow things down a bit. So I think Brussels is very relieved um, and all of the European capitals. I think with the UK, um, they they put went in, they went all in with sort of this trade deal with the United States. Um, and so it's not really clear what's going to happen here, but there seems to be a consensus that uh, 
the Boris Johnson government's going to have a lot of work to do with the Biden administration. Asia will probably, you know, Japan and South Korea may equally be a little bit relieved. Obviously, the big wild card here is China, who's not an ally, but what how that relationship will look like. And then, of course, Bolsonaro in Brazil seems, well, he's in denial as well right now, or at least just sort of going with the Trump is still going to win. Um, but that will be an interesting one to see uh, what happens there, especially since that's sort of a new alliance that was created in the Trump era. The tension I'm interested in watching is how Biden tries to balance, like, restoring America's image versus creating an American foreign policy of his own. I mean, so let's let's not speculate on whether Biden is a if he wins is like four years or eight years. That's I know that's a, a fun little parlor game, but let's give let's just give him the four years that that we know he would get if he won. It takes a long time to to like reverse people's opinions uh, based on like the last four years, right? I mean, the, the the first like two years of the Trump administration, despite some of the stuff he did, there were tons of foreign officials I was talking to and other people reported on. They're just like, well, yeah, maybe he's getting out of the system, but he'll inev- he'll inevitably realize the value of an engaged America, multilateralism, whatever, and like that didn't pan out, right? So it, I think you could imagine a roughly two year period where people go like, well, Biden is trying to. You know, you know, it takes a while to just to, to change the ship, even two degrees and whatever. Um, and then, like, you know, try to build a world that he would like to do. But four years is not enough time to do that. So I do really, if I were to bet, he's going to spend four years basically going like, America's back, baby. Joe's back. And, you know, go to Europe and be like, all right, guys, what do we do? Latin America. Hey guys, what are, what are you what are you interested in? Like, how can we make this work? Or um, to to especially allies, as Jen mentioned, like um, in Japan and South Korea, being like, look, it's fine. We're not asking you to pay uh, that much for our troops to be here, but just like maybe a little bit more, and we'll be fine. And we can move on. Like, it's gonna take a while to go across the world and bring everything to somewhat normalcy. I don't think you'll go back to a pre-Trump world. I don't think you can. But I think Biden would like a somewhat of a reversion to the mean. And you, it's hard to build a whole new foreign policy out of that. Putting aside, of course, the fact that like there will inevitably be some sort of global conflict that he may have to deal with, the Gorno Karabakh could get a lot worse. Um, perhaps Xi Jinping decides to finally go in on Taiwan or or whatever it could be. I mean, a lot of nasty stuff could happen out there that could lead Biden to completely change the way he operates. But let's say he's given a regular four years with minimal disruption and eruption. <sighs> I, I struggle to find a, a spot where Biden gets to really put his stamp on foreign policy other than being like just trying to rebuild the American brand. And in a way that Obama tried to do, and again, Biden is very influenced by his time with Obama, like after George W. Bush, he was just trying to be like, we're not the country that invades Iraq and we're not whatever. And it's part of the reason he had Clinton secretary of state, right, to rebuild America's brand. I do feel like that's going to be sort of Biden's overall mission again. One of the things when I think about what Biden means for some of these other countries, what I think about is is the kind of dictators and the authoritarians, right? Much of the story of Trump's foreign policy f- over the past four years has been, you know, kind of cozying up to dictators, especially even just rhetorically and personally in terms of relationships, right? You know, his administration has done things to challenge Russia, including sending lethal weapons to Ukraine, even though there was that whole thing about quid pro quo and impeachment. Some of you may briefly remember that. Perfect phone call. Perfect call. Perfect phone call. Right. But I mean, but you know, the the weapon still did happen, right? Eh, Um, Not really. But (laughs) they they, they didn't. They went to a warehouse. You're right. But in terms of policy, right? Yes. Sorry. um, 
there have been sanctions on Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, Trump personally has been super hesitant to criticize Russia, especially Putin, particularly when it comes to things like the poisoning suspected by, you know, ordered probably at the highest levels of the Kremlin, probably Vladimir Putin, um, of Alexei Navalny criticizing China for treatment of the Uyghurs, you know, reportedly, according to that part in John Bolton's book, which, again, take with a grain of salt, but seems pretty in line with with what we know about Trump. According to, to Bolton's book, Trump basically said that it made sense. It was doing the right thing to put the Uyghurs in these camps. Not great. Obviously, like you mentioned, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil who is apparently uh, joked about, what What was it, joked about throwing his foreign policy advisor off the balcony if Biden wins? Yeah, yeah, I think that was about right. Yeah, very legal guy. and very um, cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I do think, you know, in, in Hungary in particular, there was reporting um, yesterday that Viktor Orban in Hungary, that, it, that his staff is pretty pessimistic about Trump being reelected. And he had previously expected Trump to win and had no plan B for a Biden win. So I think a lot of countries that were really happy to have a president in the White House who was not super big on human rights and on pushing them, you know, on things like that, Saudi Arabia with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and just more generally Saudi Arabia's, you know, human rights record, things like that. You know, having someone like a Joe Biden president um, who does, you know, actually care more like genuinely about human rights. Um, that is certainly something that, that the human rights violators of the world are probably not super looking forward to. Now, you know, how hard he goes on actually doing anything about that, that remains the kind of question here, right? Because you still are operating in the same, roughly the same foreign policy world that Trump is, right? So you still like, yes, you can push China, but you still need China on trade, things like that, right? There's always a trade-off. Look, I... I struggle with this because there's a part of me that feels like one of the weird benefits of the Trump foreign policy has been the fact that he doesn't care about human rights. I mean, let's put away the moral side of it, um, which is incredibly <laughs> Yeah, important. let's just pack that right away. Yeah, and look, like I, I, <laughs> I know how callous that sounds. I'm not trying to dismiss it. Well, I mean, I am. But like, <laughs> um, but by this, I mean, it, it does, the fact that that was just never on the table gave the U.S. actually a lot of flexibility to work with countries that otherwise it wouldn't have had that flexibility to work with. Um, one of the conditions for like a China or Russia to even do any sort of deal, or even North Korea for that matter, was to, for the U.S. to stop hammering on human rights. It was always a contentious point. I would argue the U.S. was right to do those things, but still, the U.S. could make some progress, not a lot, but some progress with these countries because Trump threw that completely away. If Biden brings that back, one could imagine, in a sense, this is a risk, but one could imagine that, you know, the the relationship with some of these countries gets worse. You might be okay with that because a lot of these governments are really bad and, and especially to their people. Uh, but that is, you know, if you do have worsening ties between a certain country and the United States, that could cause its own problems. And I guess the other thing I would note uh, along these lines is, and it's a bit hot takey. I just know there have been a lot of countries, in, especially like in Eastern Europe, that have been happy with the Trump administration uh, because despite Trump's own rhetoric and, and weird stuff with Putin, the administration has been quite tough on Russia with sanctions, whatever. And it's done quite a lot on that front. And there's very little like more room for Biden to operate there. I mean, what left is there really to sanction? I mean, I guess there's a lot more in Russia than, say, um, in Venezuela or something like that. But 
like there's only a, an escalation pattern for Biden to follow. And again, Eastern European countries may like that. But at the end of the day, it may cause a lot more problems with Russia down the line. It's it's a bit of a hard dance for him to have to do. And and I find that, you know, he's not really dealt the best hand here. Um, and, and in some ways that seem traditional and things that Biden is used to could actually cause, again, there's a risk, could cause some problems down the line. I think that's true. But I think one of the reasons that people have been disappointed with America on the world stage is its sort of abdication of moral leadership. And I think it's a sacrifice potentially worth making because, you know, yes, maybe these some of these countries liked that Trump got off their back a little bit more. But some of those countries still hopefully, you know, or probably still need the United States to back them up. So I don't think it's going to be such a massive trade off that it will be like totally damaging to the U.S.'s leverage abroad, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, Biden isn't new on the world stage, right? Biden knows world leaders, right? He's met them multiple times. He knows Xi Jinping, right? He's met with these people. He has, you know, eight years of, at least just from the Obama presidency, of relationships working with, with these people. He knows these issues incredibly deeply. We've talked about this before on the show. His foreign policy knowledge is incredibly detailed. Um, you know, whether or not you agree with his prescriptions uh, is kind of a different question, but he does know his stuff. That's not really, you know, in question. So, I, you know, I think you're right, Jen. I think we will see him capitalizing on a lot of that knowledge and a lot of that history. At the end of the day, for me, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but a Biden presidency at the very least means that we don't have to worry about conflicts being started via tweet policies going out from the president's Twitter account that completely contradict what his diplomats just finished doing, you know, behind closed doors. So at the very least, I think, you know, we will see calm and more, you know, measured foreign policy process restored. I don't know, Alex, you're shaking your head. I, I, I don't know. No, it's possible. In fact, I would say more probable. I would definitely on the tweets. I don't think Biden's a big tweeter, <laughs> uh, nor does he have as big a following, I'm pretty sure, on social media. I guess what I would sad look. I think what he what again Trump could win, right? Let's so it's not guaranteed. Right. Trump could still win. Um, but if if we're continuing with our hypothetical of a Biden win here, which seems likely as of now, um, I think what's clear is like, look, I, I the, this is a very 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 different world that Biden kind of grew up in. I honestly do feel that the four years of Trump changed the international. Um, like situation more than he's aware of and, and more than he's ready for to the point that like even before Trump, Biden was still sort of Cold War-esque in his thinking because um, that's where he really operated and actually grew up in. Trump changed the international arena. And so I worry that, you know, Biden's going to want to pursue things that are no longer really on the table. Um, he'll try to browbeat it, go, you know, example of our power, whatever. I mean, he he does have a lot of force behind him, quite literally, as, a, as the president of the United States. But if he's pursuing things that just aren't in the realm of the possible, or at least not in like to what he wants, I wonder if it's a lot of wasted energy. And uh, and one thing that will change, and it's a bit related, but I think it's important, is I think we're still underestimating the importance of Trump. I guess it was early Wednesday morning. Now my time is a, means nothing to me anymore. Um, declaring victory. Right. Illegitimately from the White House in like a scene from Belarus or other kinds of countries like we're yeah. like, I mean, Venezuela, Venezuela. This is that was an, an insane moment. And like, I find it just personally maddening, but also weirdly hopeful that as a nation, like even on this podcast, we're like 40 minutes in and 
eh, we left Trump saying that to the end because it doesn't matter. We're all moving on with the election. I just find that insane. But anyway, um, here's Trump doing that. And now if you're the Bolsonaros of the world, if you're the Lukashenkos of the world, if you're the Putins of the world, if you're the Xi Jinpings of the world, if you're the Kim Jong-uns of the world, if you're whatever you are, um, Nicolas Maduro, you get to go, um, but the American president did that once from the presidential mansion. I don't have mm-hmm. to, I don't have to like, you know, adhere to these democratic standards. What is this democracy thing you're talking to me about, Joe Biden? Um, And perhaps he has some legitimacy because he would have taken over for the guy who made that statement. But still, Biden has never dealt with that environment before. He hasn't. No one has. (laughs) Uh, And so, like, it's a weird challenge for, for someone like him who has been so steeped in the same realm in general for decades to really shift his thinking that fast. Yeah. I think the world has definitely changed. Like, there's no doubt about that. We can go back to zero. But I think what thing to keep in mind is that Biden is going to have to humble himself a little bit. Like, I think a perfect first step besides the getting back into the Paris Climate Accords would be getting back into the World Health Organization and then joining the COVAX, sort of the vaccine initiative that was created not by the United States. So basically, we have to be we kind of have to like get it on the ground floor, like something like that sort of. I do think the United States and Biden, if he's president, needs to humble himself abroad. But I will say, I do think the legitimacy thing that you mentioned, Alex, was is really key. But, and this is a big but, it really is just going to depend on how this plays out. Like, we know that Trump tweets insane things that has been, you know, a factor of his administration since day one. And I I wouldn't mind living in a world where I can take Twitter off my phone because I'm not going to be worried about, you know, the president declaring war um, on social media. That being said, it's going to be how this plays out. If the U.S. institutions prevail and if this goes as every election has gone and there is a peaceful transfer of power, even if Trump throws a fit along the way and on November, January 20th, you know, 2021, whatever the date is, Biden is sworn in as president. If, you know, he wins the Electoral College and everything goes as planned, then I think that is a huge statement to the world that institutions, rule of law can still be resilient even if you have a strong man or a powerful person. And in some ways, I think it is a reassuring sign because people are very nervous about democratic backsliding all over the world. And it is, you know, not an unserious thing. And if the U.S. can get through this period, I think that is a good pathway for the country, for sure, even though it will definitely not fix all of the problems, but also the world. And again, I may be hopelessly optimistic here, but I I would like to be that for a little bit today. (laughs) Well, uh, as worldly listeners know, we rarely end on optimistic (laughs) notes, so we will end things there. Uh, Whatever happens, we will be back next week to talk about it. So don't worry uh, if everything descends into chaos. We'll be here to chat about it. If everything goes nicely and we have a nice orderly transfer of power, we will be here to be very happy and excited about that. Um, I want to thank our producer who's filling in this week, Bird Pinkerton for coming in and helping out. Uh, she's a hero. I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds 
thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 